Okay, we are live, I believe. Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Wa salatu wa salamu ala Rasulillahi wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome to another Roots Academy podcast conversation after a long break uh, during the month of Ramadan. Now to be joined by our esteemed guest, uh, Dr. Uthman Latif. May Allah preserve him and protect him. Ameen. Today we are talking about what is perhaps the most important uh, thought challenge, concern on the minds of every Muslim in the world today. And that is the matter of Palestine and the matter of Al-Quds, uh, the sacred mosque of Al-Aqsa. Um, and something that's that all of us are concerned about and wondering what we should do about it and also what lessons we should learn from history. Uh, Dr. Uthman Latif, uh, who we have with us, is I believe his PhD was in Crusader Studies and he's also published a book on the same subject. So he is uh, somebody we hope to find a lot of benefit and wisdom from uh, on this particular topic. Uh, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh, Dr. Uthman. Assalamu for joining us. The first kind of uh, what I wanted to start this this conversation with is really a question on the virtues of Al-Aqsa and, and Al-Quds. Um, there are some who say that, you know, it's just just another mosque. Um, you know, why are we more, why are Muslims more outraged about what's happening in Palestine than what's happening uh, with the Uyghurs in China or what's happening in Kashmir or in other parts of the world? Why this uh, global outrage um, and, and why is Al-Aqsa uh, and Palestine in particular such a tender spot for, for most Muslims in the world? We ask Allah put barakah in our short time, inshallah, together. Um, so there are a few things, in fact, that you mentioned in your question. In fact, a few questions within that initial question. And the first one, in fact, pertains to the fadail of Al-Quds, the merits of Jerusalem. Um, so there are, of course, uh, there is a, a very strong connection that we have uh, as Muslims to Beit al-Maqdis, to Jerusalem, in particular to the Masjid al-Aqsa for many reasons. Uh, the, perhaps the main one or the main place to begin, of course, would be uh, the opening verse of Surah al-Isra. And this, of course, is where people will begin because this is the verse that's in reference to the Prophet's night journey and heavenly ascent, in which Allah says, subhanahu wa ta'ala, that you know, glory be to him who took his servant by night uh, from the sacred designation of Masjid al-Haram to Masjid al-Aqsa, whose precincts we have blessed to show him some of our signs. Uh, now this verse, in fact, is very central, in fact, to our discussion because it's speaking about perhaps the most important event in the Prophet's life being the uh, Isra and Mi'raj. And this, there's a, the context behind this was uh, that there was a very difficult moment in the Prophet's life called the Amul Huzan, the year of grief. And in that year of grief, uh, the Prophet went through uh, tragedies. It was the loss of his wife Khadija radiallahu anha, and then the passing of Abu Talib, um, who was his physical support really in in Mecca, and then of course the the great uh, incident of Taif, the hardest day in the Prophet's life, based on his own testimony. Uh, at the same time, we should remember that Allah is revealing. You know, Allah revealed Surah Al Yusuf in the last uh, phase of, of his time in Mecca, and there's a lot of uh, hope bearing in Surah Al Yusuf. Allah reminds us that He is. Uh, Alimun Hakim, three times in that surah, Allah is all-knowing, Allah is all-wise. Uh, and then, you know, Allah took him, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, on this miraculous night journey. It's very interesting that Allah took him from the sacred designation of Masjid al-Haram to Masjid al-Aqsa. 
And this is really what for us uh, encapsulates uh, the great significance of Beit al-Maqdis as a sacred location because of the sanctity of the masjid within it. Uh, there are numerous hadith uh, speaking about the virtues of that masjid al-Aqsa. For example, when the Sahabi said, Ya Rasulullah, ayu masjid wudhi awwalan, what was the first masjid that was built? And he said, Masjid al-Haram, thumma ayy, and then what's next? And then he said, Masjid al-Aqsa. Then he asked, you know, how long between the two building? What was the time period? And he says, 40 years. Uh, and this is a masjid that Nabi Sallallahu you know, wanted us always to be connected with and connected to. Uh, once one of his companions, Maimun, his wife, asked, Ya Rasulullah, Aftina fi bait al-Maqdis, give us a ruling concerning Jerusalem. And he said, Ituhu fasallu fihi, go there and pray in it. And if you're unable to, then send some oil to you know to uh, light up its lanterns, meaning always have a, a connection to that landscape. Um, and there are the hadith, in fact, my, my own PhD, in fact, was looking at the range of hadith concerning Fadail al-Quds, uh, in particular in the 12th century, the books that were utilized by ulama uh, in that period, uh, the books that were, new books that were written, how they were disseminated, which hadith were selected in, in the publications, and for example, uh, old books, older books, in fact, that were brought again, into the four like of Ar-Raba'i and Al-Wasati. Uh, these are older books and new ones were written like As-Sama'ani. Ibn Asakir's Tariq uh, Jamashk, in fact, is another example because his opening section is Fadail al-Sham and the epicenter of Asham, the most important place in Asham, in fact, is Bait al-Maqdis. So all of the hadith pertaining to the virtues of Asham are, are, are about the virtues of, of Bait al-Maqdis and Al-Aqsa as well. Um, we should remember that. And so when the Prophet said, you know, Tawbah al-Sham, blessings upon Sham, three times you mentioned it. And they said, Wabimadalik, Ya Rasulullah, what is that for? What happens, Ya Rasulullah? And he said, Tilka malaikatullah, those are the angels of Allah that you know wrap their wings around a sham. Um, and so therefore, even the encouragement for you know Alikum Sham to go to a sham, uh, to be concerned with a sham. When the Prophet said, Allahumma Bariklana fi shamin wa fi Yemenina, blesses O Allah in our sham and our Yemen. And he kept repeating that prayer. Uh, Asham, of course, the most important place in Asham is is Jerusalem, is Bait al-Maqdis. And within Bait al-Maqdis, the most important designation aside for us is Masjid al-Aqsa. Now, of course, in, in the Prophet's uh, night journey from Mecca to Jerusalem, it was in and from the sanctity of Bait al-Maqdis of Jerusalem that he ascended to the heavens. And that's very purposeful. Remember, of course, that there is something that you know we are very fortunate, of course, as Muslims, in that we accept all of the prophets of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala without any distinction. Allah says that there is no distinction between our belief in all the messengers of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Uh, now, in this, of course, remember that Bait al-Maqdis Ma- uh, al- itself and Palestine, that whole landscape is made up of, of numerous prophets that hold value for us, sanctity for us. And this is why it's, of course, for us an aqidah issue, uh, the number of prophets of Allah that settled in that land, uh, traveled to that land. Uh, it's the place of Ibrahim, salam. It's the place of uh, Lut, salam. It's the place of Allah says, that we, we rescued Ibrahim, salam, and Lut to a land that Allah had, that we had blessed, which, of course, is Bait al-Maqdis. Suleyman, al-Riha you know, to Allah's blessed. So with Suleiman was a strong wind uh, that carried, you know, carried him and went with him. 
to a land that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had blessed uh, Suleiman alayhi salam's father Dawood alayhi salam. Uh, Allah in the Quran says, and this is one of the early verses in, in Makkah, in fact, you know, Allah says that, you know, be patient about what they say about you and remember our servant Dawood who had power. The ulama, they say the power here is power of obedience to Allah. And he was awab. And then Allah says, Allah calls the mountains uh, around him and the birds above him to remember Allah with him. All the entire landscape is a landscape in Beit al-Maqdis, in Jerusalem. Uh, and and there, are, there are other allusions in the Quran pertaining to Jerusalem. Watini was Zaytun. The ulama, they say that many of them say that Zaytun is reference to Jabal Zaytun, the Mount of Olives. Um, and, and other verses as well. Uh, one of the particular things, in fact, uh, in my study that I've written, in fact, a lot of my book, in fact, is about it, but also my, my PhD thesis as well. Um, and so there are some parts of the thesis that were not published in the book because the book took a very different, not, not a different, but a, um, a, a focused character focusing on the poetry. Uh, although I have a very long section on Fadail al-Quds in the beginning of it. Um, but one of the things that was very central to my thesis was the fact that um, the most important hadith that were made use of, in fact, in the 12th century were hadith pertaining to uh, Fudail al-Quds in the end of time, the eschatological significance uh, of Beit al-Maqdis. And this is something, in fact, that began, begins very, very early on, right from the very first scholarly response to the first crusade by Ali ibn Tahir al-Sulami in his Kitab al-Jihad. It's very focused on Beit al-Maqdis in the end time narrative, you know. But in that sense, it's still significant for us because remember that uh, the, the fact that the Prophet, you know, identified or singled out really uh, a sham as the most important location for end time events as opposed to Makkah uh, al-Mukarrama or Madinat al-Manawwara, for example, uh, makes it extremely important. Uh, and of course, you also have the hadith when he uh, collect joined these three locations collectively by saying that uh, you know one prayer in Masjid al-Haram is equivalent to hundred thousand prayers, and in, in my Masjid to a thousand prayers, and in one narration in Masjid al-Aqsa to five hundred prayers, and so a lot of value, a lot of lot of significance and value and virtue, you know, for Masjid al-Aqsa and Beit al-Maqdis as well. Uh, now, there, <laughs> there was something else that you asked also within those questions, which I can't remember. If you could. Uh, yeah. No, I think um interestingly from when you mentioned these fadail and actually when you talk about how these works were being written in the 12th century, these works on the virtues of Al-Aqsa and reminding the kind of scholarly responses to uh, the Crusades or scholarly responses to the uh, occupation of, of Jerusalem uh, in the 12th century. One interesting reflection that comes to mind for me personally is that how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sometimes in history one of his sunnahs, one of his laws, one of his methods of reviving the Muslim interest in Al-Aqsa and the Muslim interest in, in anything good is by creating an opposition, is by creating those that, that occupy the land of Palestine. And this kind of ignites a response uh, and that stirs uh, you know, what was dormant within the hearts of many Muslims. So in the in the 12th century, I'm assuming this was a time when uh, you know Jerusalem was not under kind of Muslim control. But you you mentioned so many instances in the Quran and the Sunnah where the virtues of of Jerusalem, the virtues of Al Quds of this Masjid, Masjid Al Aqsa, and perhaps one that wasn't mentioned but is still significant is the uh, changing of the Qibla 
in the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa in, in, in his um, in the Quran in Surah Al-Baqarah قَدْ نَرَى تَقَلُّبَ وَجْهِكَ فِي السَّمَاءِ فَلَنُوَلِّيَنَّكَ قِبَلَةً تَرْضَاهَا The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa first direction of prayer was indeed Masjid Al-Aqsa and then it was Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala changed, uh, changed it to, to, the, to, to pray towards the Kaaba. But that importance that although he was standing near the Kaaba, he was praying near the Kaaba, he was in Mecca, he was facing the direction of Jerusalem. I guess there's perhaps nothing more, not many things that can be more symbolic about the significance of Jerusalem, the land of prophets, the land of messengers. Um, and perhaps uh, one of the interesting things is also that Banu Israel or the uh, rather the, the Jews at the time of the Prophet were actually expecting the final prophet to be from the children of Israel, from their lineage rather than from the Ishmaelites, from the Arabs, um, given that Allah mentions various times the importance given to uh, the people of Israel and the importance given to this land in the Quran. Coming to the question of the Crusades, uh, which is you know your area of expertise, uh, your area of study, and you've already mentioned the inception of this scholarly response to the Crusades. Could we take a step back and examine, uh, you know, from a bird's eye view, how did how did the Crusader interest in Al Quds begin? You know, we know now. So, so there is the the Zionist interest in Palestine in as as a homeland uh, of, of of the Israelites, but where did the Christian interest in Al Quds begin? Uh, we obviously know where the Muslim interest is, but where did the Christian interest uh, begin? You know, f with regard to the Crusades, uh, and perhaps with that we can begin our kind of discussion of of the Crusades in in more detail. Uh, you know, for all intents and purposes, the genesis of the Crusades begins in Al-Andalus, begins in fact in Islamic Spain. Um, that's the original place where the the formulation of what was called the indulgence uh, for participants in the Crusades takes, uh, you know, takes formulation. So you had popes uh, like Alexander III, Gregory VII, uh, and then later Urban II, uh, who used uh, what's called the indulgence, which was uh, a way for um, the, the Pope to give to uh, the faithful Catholics an opportunity to achieve forgiveness of sins if they did something meritorious. Uh, in this case, you remember the context is the fact that the Muslims, by this time in Al-Andalus, by the you know, 10th, 11th century, in fact, 10th century was good, Abdul Rahman III was there, but then thereafter, after... Uh, Al-Hakam II and then uh, Ibn Abi Amr al-Mansur. Thereafter, you had what's called the Muluk al-Tawa'if. You had the party kingdoms. Muslims became divided into small uh, small kind of kingdoms. And, uh, and in their division, the Christians of the north of Aragon and um, uh, Lyon and Navarre and Castile, uh, together, of course, with the, the pre-existing Christians uh, of uh, Galicia and Astorias who had settled there right from the time of uh, Tariq bin Ziyad's uh, uh, you know, uh, entrance into Al-Quds. These were the Christians who refused to accept to Muslim rule and refused to embrace Islam. Um, so they were now... The, 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 the power base of the Christians was growing. Muslims became divided. And uh, and they could use it, of course, to their advantage. Sadly, the the Muslim states, um, you know, would sometimes enlist the support of Christian kings against other Muslim states as well. Um, the Christians now, of course, France, of course, is above Spain, and the Pope uh, or the popes uh, utilized this division in the Muslim uh, world in Spain 
to call for a, uh, I mean, it wasn't called a crusade, um, you know, it wasn't, that word wasn't used just as yet, but the idea was that an indulgence was provided. And indulgence is very key because the idea was that, um, you know, there has to be something more for Christians to achieve heaven, uh, more than just a, a confession of sins, for example. This is now based on the remission of sins. If they took an, an armed pilgrimage or an armed journey, uh, you know, to uh, fight the Muslims, to reclaim uh, Christian states, for example. In the case of uh, Alexander III, uh, I think it was to um, retake the state of, of Zaragoza from the Muslims. One was to defend the Church of Tarragona as well. Um, and so these, uh, this was in fact the genesis of the crusade because that's exactly what Urban II would use in 1095 in calling for the, what came to be known as crusade. Uh, you know, in fighting the Muslims of of Beit al of Jerusalem, so therefore the the it did not begin, so to speak, in 1095. It's just that the focus, the the landscape, the location was Beit al was Jerusalem, in 1095. But the Crusade idea was formulated previous to that from previous popes, Alexander the Third and Gregory the Seventh. Uh, and and then Urban II kind of took on from that, and it's kind of wrapped up also in the idea of Cluniac monasticism and monastic reforms and so on and so forth as well. And this is in fact a, a lot to be said here, because of course remember you had the schism between the Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox, and it was a way for uh, the Church to show that um, you know you don't need the um, the secular temporal power of an emperor to pronounce a holy war. Right, I mean that's something that the the religious uh, hierarchy, in this case the Pope, uh, would be able to do. There was therefore kind of an in in struggle between between Christians just to show this, this the power and supremacy of of the uh, you know of the Pope as this as a sole head of head of the Church, you know, uh, or the representative of Christ on Earth, in, incorporating and including. The secular authority of an emperor. Of course, the, the Eastern Orthodox disagreed with much of this, and this is why you know you had this schism and you had this breakup. But it was really a way for the Catholic Church to show that this can happen, and of course it did happen. And so, in 1095, what had happened is that uh, you know, uh, on, on the one hand, you know, you had the Seljuk uh, Seljuk power was was. Um, uh, was having successes against the Byzantines. In 1074, you had the Battle of Manzikert, at Alp Arsalan. Um, and uh, Alexius Comnenus, Alexius I, who was the Byzantine emperor, uh, writes a letter to Pope Urban II asking for assistance against the Muslims, assistance uh, in, against the, the, uh, the Seljuk uh, Turks. Uh, now, of course, he receives that letter, and the letter is going to be really important in his calling for the crusade. Um, but it wasn't just that. Also, there were also reports coming through uh, into uh, you know into Western Europe that um, uh, that a part of the of the Holy Sepulchre. Now, the Holy Sepulchre is for the Christians uh, across the board the most important sanctified location on earth. It's the place. It's the church. It's called the Mother Church. It's the place where they believe Jesus Christ was buried. And uh, resurrected, and you know, of course, we don't believe that, but that's really what they believe, uh, and therefore, that that ground, that sacred ground, is very important for all of them. It was a location of pilgrimage, and it still is, of course, a major location for pilgrimage. Mm -hmm. um, and so, uh, and then, of course, within that, uh, within that landscape, is going to be all the other 
traditions to do with other uh, prophets that they believe in or saints that they believe in. Of course, you have Mary, Maryam salam as well, and and the Church of Holy Sepulchre has other, you know, has other people that are connected to it as well. Um, and so uh, the idea was uh, that uh, in the in the ten, I think in the early eleventh century, there was a report that the Fatimid Shia Khalif Al Hakam bi Amrullah had destroyed a part of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Now, because you had Christian pilgrims, tra pilgrims traveling still, even though it was under Muslim rule, they were still traveling to Jerusalem to pray and venerate, you know, in uh, in the holy sites that they have, including to the Holy Sepulchre. Uh, they 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 sent these reports back to uh, to uh, their fellow Christians in Europe, saying that this is what's happened. Now. Um, now it is not uh, so. What's going to happen is that Urban II is going to use this. It's a bit of a roost, really. He's going to use this though to to galvanize the spirit of the Christians uh, of his of his locality of his time. He's also going on. Urban II is not based on a single location that is calling the Christians to partake in an armed armed pilgrimage against the Muslims. He's also traveling right throughout Europe, you know, to call the, to galvanize support of the people. Uh, but when he does that, of course, he's using the idea that uh, Alexis Komnenos has written asking for help, and he's using the word like, you know, our our fellow brothers, even though there's a schism, still there's a sense of unity between them. Our fellow Christian brothers is there, and secondly, the idea that the Church of the Holy Sepulchre has been desecrated, being violated, mm -hmm. um, right? And now the the point is. Uh, there's some truth in the fact that Al-Hakam Al Amrullah had destroyed part of it, but it wasn't as big as it was being made out to be. Mm -hmm. And also we, also we know that in the subsequent decades, it was actually restored, right? The, the damage was restored. It was, it was rebuilt in, in parts. And so uh, it's obviously very selective, the information he's using to build up this grand narrative of the crusade. <coughs> um, that, that's, that's there on, on one side. Now, the third thing, of course, is that there is... Um, there is, uh, you know, very intense propaganda, anti-Islamic propaganda at this mm. point. What's happening is that, remember, that, you know, Christians lived with Muslims. And so we knew a lot more about Christianity than they knew about Islam in Europe because there weren't any Muslims living with Christians, uh, <laughs> except the travelers who would come and they would in engage with Muslims and so on and so forth. And there's also trade as well. But but it's not living with the Muslims. And so the ones he's preaching to, Urban II, are brigands, are thieves, are murderers, you know, uh, are people who have been spilling the blood of other Christians. And so he's providing the crusade as a kind of a chance for them. To, redemption. To a redemption. That's it. Mm -hmm. uh, because rather than turning the weapons against fellow Christians, why not turn them against the big enemy we have here in Jerusalem? Um, and if they did that, then they'd find forgiveness of their sins. Uh, and also the ones that they're going to be fighting against, who are they? Who are the Muslims, you know? Mm -hmm. And so we have, therefore, the language of dehumanization, which I discussed in my book on being human, which is available for free download at sapiensinstitute.org. Uh, language of othering and dehumanization. So Muslims, therefore, are, are called like, uh, they're called, you know, baby killers. And uh, they sacrifice babies at the altars and they worship Muhammad, they worship the devil. All these kind of things are coming through. So remember, therefore, for that those initial audiences uh, who are hearing Urban II's uh, speech, uh, you know, there's going to be a, a great sense of outrage. There are about four or five surviving accounts of his speech. Each one is, of course, different. 
and written after the effect, after the events of the first crusade. We don't know exactly what he said, but they have, but they really have this language. In fact, each one has a different kind of language. One of them, for example, is very eschatological. I think the account of Gibeh de Nogin or Robert of Reims, very eschatological, uh, the idea that if you fight the Muslims uh, and defeat them, then uh, you will be with the party that will be with Jesus because Jesus will return you know, and take his place in, in the temple uh, in, in Jerusalem and you'd be privileged to be from that army. Um, you'd, you'd defeat the Antichrist, and so a lot of eschatological languaging in, in, in one of his one of his uh, accounts. And so, therefore, the focus, uh, you know, for the early Crusaders was, of course, to recover and recapture Jerusalem from the Muslims. It was based on a lot of stereotyping, uh, false propaganda about the Muslims. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, he's using the fact that the Seljuks are making a lot of inroads into into Byzantium. Uh, and then he could use that to say that we, in, in spite of the schism, we still have to unite because they're our Eastern Christian brothers. Um, mm. And also then the idea that although it's a, it's a long backstory because that's early, early 11th century, like 1006, something like that, um, mm. about al hakam Amr Allah destroying Holy Sepulchre, he can mm. use that, of course, you know, to, to, to galvanize the spirit of the of the Crusaders. And then, of course, the, 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 the remission of sins was that anybody who takes the cross um, you know, and travels, uh, you know, to fight against the Muslims. Even if he dies en route, uh, he will have full pardon of sins and enter into heaven. And this, of course, uh, you know, became a, a, a really uh, an interesting thing, you know, for for them to to partake in, and they and they partook in it. And that's what made the first crusade. Therefore, it's really interesting if we if we take a step back and look at the parallels from what's happening today or what's happened in the last you know 60 70 years or so is you know and someone asked me this yesterday like you know what's happening in palestine uh, just on a human level uh, you know um, is there no is there no humanity of the people who are oppressing the palestinians and um, it's really interesting that when you think of that that there is something that allah creates in our fitrah our human instinct not to harm others or not to oppress others but he, Oppression doesn't come out of nowhere. I think like you've mentioned in how historically how the Crusades began, it, it comes with years and years, or in today's world with the proliferation of media outlets and um, you know the ability to control ideas and thought at the highest levels. Uh, it comes with propaganda and to consider somebody else as less than human. And that's where you give yourself the, you give yourself the permission and perhaps in terms of current events at the moment in Palestine, um, the entire kind of the reigning of our, our, our artillery and uh, of destruction and, and killing the over, I don't know, three to 400 uh, adult children that passed away in Palestine, Mount of Mercy on the mall. Mm-hmm. All of that was, was triggered by uh, kind of, it was triggered by something in the sense that uh, there was some kind of what was quoted as a clash but then that clash was used as a reason to completely bombard the hell out of an entire group of people. So it's a sim- similar parallel of, you know, this kind of this church of the Holy Sepulchre and how that was used as a motivation to inspire an entire crusade against. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, you know, the, the, the most obvious similarity is the fact that, you know, the crusaders who traveled uh, from Western Europe to Jerusalem, mm-hmm. they traveled with this... Um, 
real sense of dehumanizing of the Muslims, of the people of, of that of that locality. And this is why when they went, uh, you know, the, the proclamation for the Crusaders was dos volt, dos volt, in Latin means God wills it, God wills it. In fact, in the Spanish Inquisition, one of the grand inquisitors, um, I think it was uh, Thomas, Thomas de Tocamada, I think it was the second grand inquisitor, or maybe the first, but he came out with the, the words Dios la quer, Dios la quer, which in Spanish means God wills it, God wills it. Okay? So the kind of things that you find happening in Spanish Inquisition were really quite inspired by what was happened or what happened in the First Crusade with the Christians pronouncing, in fact, they're entering into Jerusalem, breaking the walls, smashing the heads of babies against the walls, attacking women, men, slaughtering the people in Jerusalem with the words, dos volt, dos volt, God wills it, God wills it, meaning this has to happen. And of course, what they're also doing is that they're using a biblical, and this, in fact, is something that all the Zionists, in fact, do as well, that they're using biblical uh, narratives concerning how God punished, you know, heathen nations in the Old Testament. Okay, mm. and uh, and so they're using imagery uh, like to do with blood and 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 slaughter. I mean, killing uh, that the readers back home in Europe who did not participate in the Crusade could understand that this was a, a divinely sanctified expedition from the Pope because God approved it to be. And there's some parallels you can make from the, the destruction of heathen people in the Old Testament. Um, mm. the, 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 the biggest thing of, here, of course, is, is a language of dehumanization. It's the fact that I, I did a program on Islam Channel just uh, a few hours ago, in fact, today. And, and this was one of the discussion points about, um, about the dehumanization. And I read something. I'm going to read it, inshallah, again here now. Uh, and, I, and I in fact, I have a good explanation and segments of this in my book on being human uh, as well. And this is, in fact, accounts from the Refuseniks. The Refuseniks are ex-IDF soldiers uh, in mm. In, in Israel, okay, who refused to participate uh, in the, uh, you know, in in the efforts of in in the war uh, that the uh, Israeli uh, army uh, unleashes upon innocent Palestinians, they refuse that they're conscientious objectors. And one of their books I have here, which is called Refuseniks, uh, Israel's Soldiers of Conscience. One of the accounts I'm going to read this to you because this is really taps into what you asked. This is this is by Stephen Langfer, and and I'll read this. This is what he says. He says that. Um, the basic moral law here is the Torah, as stated by the Jewish sage of antiquity Hillel, who wrote, "What is hateful to you, do not do not do unto others." Hmm. Its principle, its principle, um, uh, another person's life is as important to him as mine is to me. Insofar as I owe my own being to another person, that law is basic to being human. We are stuck with it. When we violate it, we feel guilt. There is, however, a way to oppress others and not feel guilt. Hmm. The moral law applies to persons so one can avoid feeling guilt by persuading oneself that the oppressed are subhuman. Hmm. The doctrine of the subhumanity of the Arabs is in full swing among us, among us Israelis. We call them grasshoppers, cockroaches, uh, one thousandth of a Jew, animals the dirtiest people on earth. But then, instead of guilt, one feels dread of these, uh, of their ultimate revenge. And because one has punished their humanity, sorry, one has pushed their humanity into the unconscious, the oppressed seem not only like animals, but like animals with demonic properties. 
So one feels threatened and, and beats them harder. And then there is more guilt to avoid. So one dehumanizes them more and on and on. It is a spiral of evil. One cannot sit upon another people without dehumanizing them. This is my green line. I refuse to do to dehumanize the Arabs. So therefore, this is you know a personal account from one of the ones who was stationed, in fact, uh, in the West Bank, who realized that there is a policy of dehumanization at play here. And in fact, if you read the account, and there's so many videos now uh, that have really gone viral, uh, where these uh, Israeli soldiers, many of them are in fact refuseniks, are now you know laying bare for the public how this all starts and it starts in in israeli schools right that they're taught from a very young age how not to empathize with palestinian people right the idea of superiority of race uh superiority of, of race and the fact that they have some inherited right to that land and and the people who are native to that land don't have that same right uh, builds up this sense of um, othering, you know, uh, of the Palestinians in the uh, Israeli psyche, and this is something that you'll see across the board. And so, many of these accounts uh, in this book, Refusenik, and there's so many others as well, you'll see the same thing being described. Um, and so, I think that the language of dehumanization is is there, and this is something. In fact, whenever you have people who have genocidal tendencies, I discuss in my book, for example. The genocides of Rwanda, you know, of uh, of what's happening in Palestine, in the Holocaust as well. Because remember that the same things that they're using against the Palestinians now have been used against them as well, and that's the tragic mm -hmm. irony of the whole thing. There's a very good book here by a man called uh, Hajjo Meyer, called "The End uh, of Judaism: An Ethical Tradition Betrayed." Hajjo Meyer was an Auschwitz survivor. He survived Auschwitz. He wrote this book, in fact, to to sympathize with the plight of the Palestinians. Uh, and he kind of has a lot of uh, references there about what he experienced in, in Auschwitz and the Holocaust, and the parallels with what the Palestinians are facing now, uh, you know, in, in their occupation. Uh, and so therefore, that's that's just a sad tragedy of uh, of people who took it upon themselves to, to render others as less than human. It's like, mm -hmm. you know, all of us have in our minds, we have a mental canvas. And if we're painting on our mental canvas with... Uh, with with broad with broad strokes and wide brushes, and where mm -hmm. only have a single color, black, for example, and we are disallowing, you know, finer grades of distinction and disallowing identity. Then we're going to have one collective mesh, isn't it, or one collective grouping, uh, you know, of one, uh, you know, hideous uh, enemy uh, mm -hmm. that is uh, that is uh, like a pest. So therefore, even the the even the dehumanizing labels like a cockroach, a cockroach, you see that as a pest that needs to be removed for everyone's safety and security. Uh, vermin, vermin, pests, rodents. These are the mm -hmm. kind of words used against the Palestinians. So therefore, the parallel is this: that in the first crusade, uh, that sense of dehumanization was there. They called the the Palestinians, sorry, they called the Muslims uh, of Beit Maqdis similar kind of things. Um, saw them as heathens, as worshippers of Muhammad, killers of babies, um, sacrificed babies at the altars, and, and others as well. Uh, and that kind of gave gave rise to this uh, agenda of uh, of uh, of justifying the slaughter of the Muslims of Beit al-Maqdis in the account of Ibn Athir. It was seventy thousand people that were killed in Beit al-Maqdis, and of course for the for the Zionist entity, it's the same thing. So therefore. Uh, as as this individual was explaining, you know, in in his account, uh, we don't feel that much guilt, right? Because we've dehumanized them already. 
And subhanAllah, the, the, what you've mentioned about the, the accounts of anxiety of soldiers and about the language dehumanization, if you're looking in contrast of the prophetic tradition within Islam of the Hadith of Sahih Muslim, where Sahih ibn Hunayf uh, and Qais ibn Sa'ad, may God be pleased with them both, they were in an area of Sham, of modern day, of, of the Levant region. of They were in Qadisiyah, which is in Iraq. And a janaza, a funeral proceeding passed by them. And it was said to them, they both stood up to follow the, this funeral. And it was said to them that this person is from the people of this, this land, uh, i.e. not from the Muslims. Um, so they both responded to this person that, you know, did you know that the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, a funeral passed by him. He stood up to follow the proceeding and someone said to him, oh, it's a Jew. It's a Jew, meaning don't follow the proceeding or don't, you know, don't stand up out of respect. Uh, for this for this dead person uh, he got up and he said well isn't it a human being that god created so this um in in the muslim sense the uh the sanctity of the human of human life uh, whoever kills a human being it is as though he has killed all of humanity um you know tying this back to the the question of history and in particular, after the period of, of occupation or, or after the period of Crusades, uh, I believe it was about 87 years uh, in which the Crusaders held uh, control over Al-Aqsa. There then is, uh, you know, I believe in the 12th century, in the 13th century, there is uh, Salahuddin Al-Ayyubi in the Ayyubid dynasty who then takes back control of Al-Aqsa. And I believe his story does not actually begin with him, rather it begins with his teacher and mentor, Nuruddin Zengi. Could you shed a bit of light as to how did the Muslims recapture Al-Aqsa after uh, you know, a period of, 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 of humiliation and defeat? Yeah, so I mean, the thing is, is even before Nuruddin Zengi, I mean, what would happen is that it's 88 years. And so in 1099, when Al-Quds is, is taken by the Crusaders, they set up their Latin kingdom of Jerusalem. Now, the uh, the earliest responses we have, the one I mentioned of As-Sulami's text, Kitab al-Jihad, his text was uh, written. It was uh, there was a, a public uh, gathering, uh, you know, for that re reading uh, in the Umayyad Mosque in Damascus. He was uh, the Shafi'i Faqih, in fact, of 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 the Umayyad Mosque in Damascus. The numbers who attended were not that many, or we would have expected them to be larger, but they were not that many. In fact, um, uh, you had, and this is discussed a lot in my book. In fact, uh, the cutting edge of the poet's sword, Muslim poetic response to the Crusades. I uh, have very lengthy sections on the earliest responses, you know, to the occupation of Jerusalem in, in 1099, um, and that is coming through from the poets. Right, so it's poets. Uh, our first responses come, in fact, from the poets. It's uh, people like Abu Mazafar al-Abi Wardi, Ibn al-Khayyat. There is an anonymous poet collected uh, in the work of uh, Ibn Taghribirdi al-Najum al-Zahira, which was a, a, a voluminous uh, text on history of Egypt, which was published later. So you have these few kind of you know, early responses. Uh, the 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 words are very evocative. Uh, uh, in, in the words of um, uh, Al Abi Waradi, very famous opening lines were How can the eye sleep at a time of disaster like this that would awaken any sleeper when your brothers are sleeping in the bellies of vultures? And 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 so what happened is that uh, a contingent from Asham from Damascus. 
uh, I think Alabi Wadidi might have been from them or they at least learned his word, learned, learned his poem. They traveled to Baghdad, the, the, the power base of the Khalif, um, you know, uh, and they arrived on the Jum'ah. And it was, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a big thing. And they recited the poem of Alabi Wadidi. Uh, and in one account, they even broke the minbar. They even broke the minbar, you know, the imam was standing on uh, in the sense of outrage that this is what just happened to us in, in Beit al-Maqdis. Um, but in spite of that, there was no political response. You see, that, that sense of interest was not there. Even, in fact, in one account, uh, the khalif threatened to punish them because their arrival, it, it clashed with the arrival of the khalif's second wife from Isfahan. You know, so what was supposed to be priorities, right? Yeah, yeah. Celebration, celebration day for them. In fact, turned out to be a day of, of having to hear about what's happened to Muslims of Bilad Isham. Uh, and so these early steps took place. Early poetic responses. Some of the early accounts, Ibn Qalanisi, for example. You have voices of condemnation, voices of accusing the Crusaders, and so on and so forth. But politically, they can't do much because there's fragmentation in the Muslim world. There's division between the Sunni and the Shia. That's one thing. There's division between the Seljuk princes, the Seljuk emirs. Um, even when Al-Quds was being besieged, the two sons of the Seljuk um, uh, uh, Sultan uh, Malik Shah were fighting against one another. You know, uh, Second to that, of course, or third to that, remember there were some things that there was a year called the year of the death of the Khalifs. This is, I think, 11, no, not 11. This is going to be 10, uh, it's in the 1080s, if I remember. It was about a, a decade or so, or even less than that, before the Crusaders arrived. Um, and it was called the year of the death, because in that one particular year, you had the, the death of the uh, of the Seljuk uh, uh, um, Sultan Malik Shah, his wazir Nizam al-Mulk died as well one, one month after him. The next year you had the death of the Fatimid Khalif. One month after him you had the death of the Sunni Khalif al-Mustansar Billah uh, and the Fatimid wazir as well. So you have five, five deaths of very key political players who had ruled, like Nizam al-Mulk had been ruling for like 30 years, for example, and it's kind of mm -hmm. that fragmentation was there in, in that part of the world in, in Asham. Uh, and I don't know if the Crusaders, in fact, knew this, uh, but even if they didn't, they could capitalize on that sense of, you know, disarray in the Muslim world. And so uh, these things, of course, made it difficult. But the point is this, that the spirit of understanding uh, the, the sanctity of Al-Quds was not lost. They realized that something big has happened. In the poem of um, of Ibn al-Khayyat, which is a long poem, it's, it's fully translated in my book. It's like 55, 55 verses of that poem. Um, he says, okay. He says that uh, that you know what is uh, what has been what was once uh, licit and permissible has now become impermissible. But you're speaking about the violation of sanctities, right? The fact that our women have now become permissible for them. All that was sanctified in Al-Quds has now become, you know, uh, ruined and, and polluted in, in, in Al-Quds. Uh, and so these early responses were there. But one thing you'll see, for example, even in Al-Quds poem, Ibn Khayyat's poem, is that there is a sense of internal blame. There is an internal blame, you know, to the Ummah, right? It's not always so much 
anti-crusade in fact in, in those in those early years it's not that comes later in fact from 11 45 45 onwards but in the early poem is internal blame where is the khalif where is where is the ummah where is the unity of the ummah you know why why is the khalif not doing his duty and so on and so forth and so the <coughs> idea was to kind of try and fix that fix the house of islam uh, in those early, in those early responses, it's an interesting, uh, you know, parallel to, to today as well. If you don't mind me jumping in there, yeah. and you know, there is a general sentiment of general, the general mass public of like, you know, why aren't Muslim countries doing more? And uh, is anything we're doing actually having effect on the ground? And uh, X, Y, Z. And perhaps this this point of <clears throat> Allah Subhanahu wa Taala saying, "Inna Allah la yughayyiru ma biqawmin hatta yughayyiru ma bi'anfusihim." Allah does not essentially take away a blessing. He doesn't change negatively, meaning take away a blessing until people themselves change what is within themselves. If we turn negatively away from him, then indeed he will take away uh, blessings in return from us perhaps. And uh, the schism within the Ummah, so one interesting point that's kind of frequently mentioned or troped about the the Salah when Salahuddin al-Ayyubi ended up taking over Jerusalem again, was the idea that Ibn Qudama Al-Maqdisi, i.e. From, from Al-Maqdis, from Jerusalem, a famous Hanbali uh, scholar, fought under the banner of Salahuddin Al-Ayyubi, who was uh, different in both his school of thought in jurisprudence, he was Shafi'i, as well as he was an Ash'ari, so in his theology, he was uh, you know, uh, different to Ibn Qudama. And yet there was a, so, a form of unity that facilitated uh, you know, this, uh, this recapturing of, of, of Jerusalem. Well, it, it began. It began, in fact, much earlier with uh, with Al Ghazali. So Al Ghazali was, in fact, the archetype for this. He, he dies in eleven eleven. Um, you know, in the so Al Ghazali in his life has this remarkable life because Al Ghazali was someone who was uh, teaching, of course, in in this great school of Baghdad. Before that, I think in Nishapur, I think he was teaching. Um, then he goes into Baghdad and he has this in fact what's interesting I have a lecture on this in fact online as well about the interesting parallels because 1095 was the year that the crusade was launched and 1095 was the Al-Ghazali has a spiritual transformation he leaves and goes into Damascus and to Jerusalem and he writes his Ahiyalumadin in large part you know, in, in Jerusalem as well uh, but what Al-Ghazali is appealing to, in fact, this is part of his spiritual transformation, is that he was so sick, he was just so sick of the uh, of the body of students of knowledge that he felt was so pretentious, so pretentious. <laughs> he, was, he was just so sick of it. I mean, he was really lamented it he was losing his faith in some points i mean mm -hmm. he just felt he just felt that it was so pretentious like people are not doing it for allah's sake they're just competitive they're fighting one another they're just looking for money and different things like that and so he you know he has this transformation subhanallah but the other thing of course is the fact that there are major problems major problems with these divisions that you mentioned so for example mm -hmm. uh, the hanafis are physically fighting the shafi'is like mm -hmm. Not just insult, they're punching, they're brawls in the streets of Baghdad. You know, the the Ash'aris, for example, are fighting the the Hanbalis, for example. You know, or they, you know, this fight, this fight's taking place like that. Uh, or the Atharis fighting the Ash'aris. You know, these these things are happening, and so uh, what Al Ghazali does is he realizes that this is this is not going to strengthen the ummah. He's not speaking in the context of the Crusades, remember, yeah? He's not. But but that 
context is going to envelop the narrative, uh, uh, you know, from the in the early decades all the way through to Nur al-Din Zengi and arguably even into Salah al-Din al-Yubi as well, uh, the realization that the internal reform is mandatory, mm-hmm. is imperative, because if you don't have it, number one, you have distance from Allah. Don't expect any help from Allah. Yeah. Uh, in one of the letters that uh, uh, Sayyidina Umar al-Khattab wrote back to Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas when he asked for more reinforcements, mm-hmm. uh, what did he say? He says, uh, um, I warn you against your sins. Because the sins of your army are more deadly to you than your enemies are. Your sins, you know. And so be cautious of these things. And there's, there's so much to do with that. So therefore the warning was was there. Like Ghazali was saying, you've got to fix up as an ummah. Uh, now this does not mean he does not hold the political powers to be accountable. They, they were. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Yeah. This is why... This is why Sulami in his text Kitab al-Jihad is referencing al-Ghazali, right? It mm. kind of it just it kind of validates Sulami's argument, but he's justifying his argument by showing that even al-Ghazali was saying there has to be jihad, there has to be jihad, and so on and so forth. Uh, but al-Ghazali's premise was you have to have internal reform, like you mentioned that Allah wouldn't change people's condition until they change what is within themselves. Mm. Um, stop the fighting. Have more brotherliness, brotherhood amongst yourselves. Ali Ghazali, for example, why does he write so much about the imams of the madhahib? Right? Mm. He does that to show that they weren't like you. He's speaking to the students in his time, yeah. That you're you're so proud to be Shafi'i, but you're nothing like Imam Shafi'i. <laughs> you're proud to be one like of the you. one of the strange stories that's mentioned in Tabakat al-Subki, uh, oh. very kind of showing the conflict at the time between Muslim scholars is Ibn Asakir, who you've already mentioned, uh, and Ibn Qudam al-Maqdisi, you know, someone who is uh, born, you know, born and brought up in in, in, in Bayt al-Maqdis, in, in and around Bayt al-Maqdis. Uh, Ibn Asakir passes by Ibn Qudama one day and he says, Assalamu alaikum. And Ibn Qudama doesn't reply his salam. When we know it's obligatory for a Muslim to reply another Muslim salam. And when asked, why didn't you reply his salam? Ibn Qudama says his theological position is that God has internal speech, al-kalamun nafsi. So I reply to his salam internally as well. Mm-hmm. So this kind, this level of pettiness, perhaps, yeah, you know, not to take away from the status of these imams, but really yeah. this level, this level of <clears throat> of feud, one can say, between two Muslim scholars, was taking place at the time. Yeah. Um, and, and moving on from that point of internal transformation and the and yet the importance of so the balance between holding the political powers to account and internally also realizing our own maladies and as an ummah, how much we have to work on in, in order to achieve these blessings from Allah. Yeah, Al-Ghazali, for example, in, in his Ahya, he's, he's stressing on the, the the virtues of the of the imams, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, by showing therefore that they weren't engaged in the kind of things that you guys are fighting over and they had, they were concerned, and this is why what he does is he focuses a lot on akhira, akhira, mm-hmm. maut, dying, you know, to show that all of your petty arguments have to finish one day because there's death awaiting all of us, you know. Mm. And if you think more of akhirah, you won't have time for these petty disputes amongst yourselves that are, that are mm. killing you, yeah. And mm. so he has his purpose and he does that. Uh, and so what happens is that it taps into the uh, Nilamiya uh, system. So Nilam Mulki builds these madrasas and mm. and Nuruddin Zengi, uh, who of course becomes the, the main ruler of Asham soon enough, from 1140. So therefore, because we said that the initial decades, there was not much of a political response. There were some attempts, however. I mean, there was even attempts from the Fatimids to to fight back uh, in Jerusalem. 
but but the 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 the, the, the political vision wasn't really there uh, at, mm. that, at that time uh, until you get to 1144 when Imaduddin Zengi uh, retakes the state of Edessa. Edessa was a Crusader state, and what it does then it kind of uh, it shifts. I mean, the the air just the the, the wind just cha everything changes mm. because um, and and particularly so in my book I look at the poetry and how that changes. So uh, very very strong calls from this point onwards for the jihad uh, in in for for. For recapturing Bittul Maqdis, from that point onwards, the language is very strong and also very optimistic and hopeful. The fact that if you could retake Odessa, that means that Jerusalem retaking is is within our sight, you know. Um, but even this, it doesn't mean now, therefore, it's only a political military response because Nuruddin Zengi, what he's doing is he's utilizing these schools, the Nizamiya Madrasas, and he's building more in internal states of Syria like Hama and Homs, Baalbek, Damascus. In fact, there's 11 when he gets there, there's 22 when he dies. He builds 11 more by 1174 when he dies. Mm. So does, does, does the education, this yeah. education reform has a role in the reviving this kind of renaissance that, of the that, Muslims? But, but what I do, so my thesis, in fact, and what I discuss in the beginning section of my book, in fact, I look at uh, what's happening in these madrasas, which books are being taught. And so Remember, we're saying that you have now books of Fadail al-Quds. Remember, if, if al-Quds is taken in 1099, um, you have a new generation you know, of, of, of Muslims who do not know much about Bait al-Maqdis as, as, as a third most holy sanctity, as a, as a first qibla, like you mentioned. They don't know about these things because they've never been there, right? And, uh, and so therefore, the, the, the books, the teaching of Fadail al-Quds becomes so essential uh, in these schools of learning, right? These new books are coming, old books from Al-Rabai, Al-Wasati coming out, mm -hmm. and new books being written, uh, even Asakir's texts and so on and so forth, so that the Muslims can have this feeling of yearning to travel to, settle in, to liberate Bait al-Maqdis for that generation of people. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the, the centers of learning, this is, a, in fact, a very big, important thing, and this is something that, I think our brothers from Friends of Aqsa also very much uh, encourage that our Islamic schooling system, you know, our schools uh, and, you know, our homes, because the home, of course, is a madrasa as well, that, you know, we're teaching our children about the virtues and the sanctities of Betul Maqdis of Jerusalem and so on and so forth. But that's kind of the purpose that it served in part, in part, the purpose that it served. And so new mosques are being built uh, to galvanize that sense of Islamic spirit. But Nuruddin Zengi, by the way, himself as a ruler, uh, really became a kind of a paradigm of of an Islamic of an, a virtuous a virtuous righteous Islamic ruler. There were texts that were written like uh, like the Bahr al Fawaid, uh, written in Persian. This was a uh, this these these texts. Even Al Ghazali has one. So these these were texts on like Nasihat al Muluk, you know, like the the advice to the kings. Yeah. Uh, so this is like Al Ghazali has one. This is an anonymous. This the the Bahar al Fawaid. This is an anonymous author, but it's translated by a woman called uh, author called Maysami, which you can find, uh, you know, in the you can find online perhaps Maysami. Uh, and these were advice, you know, to how the the morals, the etiquettes in, of of the Muslim ruler, uh, his virtue, righteousness, to be just, to be. Uh, equitable to be good with money and so on and so forth so they had to live up to that standard because the religious classes now of course were also growing and so on and so forth in these new madrasas that were being built 
And so Nuruddin Zengi uh, really takes on this character. He was called by the poet as Dul Jihadain min Aduwin Wanafs, Fahuatul Hayati fi Hejai. That they said about him, he was the one who encompassed two jihads, one against himself, one against the enemy. And therefore, all of his life, he's in jihad. Nuruddin Zengi was someone who uh, was very concerned about. A salah in the masjid about the night prayers for example in his army he would make sure people pray the night prayers uh he was very uh, very kind and very giving to the poor uh he even gave a lot of money to elderly people like the like the Su old sufis who just remained in the mosque making dua and once they said to him why are you giving money to those who don't do anything they don't fight for us they just do nothing and he said the very famous line he says why would i stop giving money to a people uh you know who fight for me uh you know uh, when they don't see me and give it to people who fight only when they see me and your arrows sometimes hit sometimes but their arrows never miss their targeting they always <laughs> to allah so he understood that's that a beautiful allah. point about dua that uh, i mean just just uh yes just a couple of days ago uh you know university students you know mentioned to me this kind of frustration of we feel helpless we feel like nothing we're doing is really making a difference on the ground and you know all we have to resort to is dua almost like um it's almost like a feeling like oh we can only do dua yeah. whereas this attitude towards dua that you know your arrows may hit may miss but the the arrow of dua never misses is such a beautiful i think point to take away Allah akbar i mean this is nabi sallam in his most difficult moment in Taif, when Allahumma ilayka ashku dha'fa quwati wa qillat hiddu hawani ala nas Allahumma he said oh Allah I complain to you for the weakness of my strength lack of my resources and people don't take me seriously I mean dua is, is a weapon of the believer as the Prophet himself says so we should never ever give up on dua I mean this is your you have to ask Allah you know in in in, in the in Yaqub alayhi sallam he called inna ma ashku bathi wa hazni ila Allah I complain mm. of my distress and anguish unto Allah. And I know about Allah what you don't know about Allah. He has firm trust and, and conviction in Allah. Complaining of your anguish and distress unto Allah. Dua is a, that's something that's super essential for all of us as Muslims. Mm -hmm. But the point was that Nuruddin Zengi realized that the 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 point has to be you know comprehensive. It, it, it has to con contain lots of different elements to make this success likely. A transformation you know, of the Muslim body. Uh, a revival of Islamic learning, a focus on recapturing Baitul Maqdis. And he himself, in his personality, what does he do? Lots of stuff. He builds stuff, you know, he makes schools and he feeds people, very generous. But you could say that Nuruddin kind of has three points, kind of a three-point program for revival mm -hmm. in political terms. Uh, number one, he, he, he saw that um, there has to be a unification in Asham. Sham was divided between Aleppo and Damascus, you know. Uh, and division, of course, is is the Prophet says is the farraq is adab. Division is a punishment, and unity is rahma. And and they were divided, and so he realized that as long as they remain divided, there's no chance on earth they have to recapture Jerusalem, uh, because it's easy then for the crusaders to use one against the other one. That's exactly what they did, in fact, in Al-Andalus, isn't it? They say, this is why, for example, you had revival attempts from the Marabitun, Muhidun, for example. Why they would, why they kept calling in the armies of Yusuf ibn Tashufin from the Maghrib, right, to, to push back against the Christians of the north in Al-Andalus. Uh, when, when he kept doing that, on the, on the third time he remained, and he, and he fought against all of them to bring back this sense of unity in, in the Muslim body, but it was kind of a bit too late. Um, but the whole point is, is that the division is just simply your weakness, you know. 
Uh, and so, um, and of course, we learn a lot from uh, in, in from Battle of Uhud in, in the Quran. Allah, there's many verses in the Quran about uh, you know not to dispute, not to argue, because you know your 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 courage will depart, and so on and so forth. Um, and so, uh, Nuruddin Zengi, therefore, you know, encapsulates this kind of par paradigm. He kind of takes on this mantle of the jihad spirit uh, and and then personal reform as well, reform of the army. Um, he's very concerned. In fact, in one very famous case, so uh, one of the po one of the the poets came to him and said to him, uh, "You know, you you need to um, uh, you need to reduce the taxes." He's saying to Nuruddin, and so he says, "Ya Nuruddin, mada taqul ida waqafta bimaukifin faradan dalilan walhisabu asiru wa taallaqat fi malqusum wa anta fi yom alhisab musalsul majruru wa tafarraqat anka aljunud wa dik wa anta fi dik alkubur mawasul almakburu ya nuruddin mahil nafsika hujj tanju biha yom almaadi yom tabdal uru nuruddin mada taqul what are you going to say on a day when you're standing before Allah and your accountability is hard that day what would you say nuruddin when you're in the depths of your grave and your enemy is going to leave your army would leave you he said, Nuruddin, prepare for yourself an excuse before Allah because that day is going to be hard for you. And then he, he, he just reduced the taxes immediately because he was so <laughs> affected by, by, the, by the line on the verses. <laughs> and this is, this is a true representation of, of a pious ruler because he's looking for the pleasure of Allah. Subhanahu. And this is why Nuruddin, he lives a frugal life. He doesn't have much in his life. Um, once his uh, wife comes to him and she said, because uh, he had two shops you know, for his wife in, in Hama, I think it was. And uh, she came and she said, uh, uh, we need more because it's not enough for us and the family. And he said to her, he said, uh, uh, he said, uh, li illa hada. Uh, all I have is this. Mm -hmm. And everything that I have in my hand, I am a trustee for the Muslims. I won't betray them. And I nor will I enter Jahannam because of you, you know. So he's really encapsulating this amazing character. But this became very important uh, for the idea of success. Now, the second thing he does is that he realized there are internal enemies that you have to isolate. Yeah, and this is very important, very important because he realizes that the Fatimids of Egypt, they, uh, and remember, of course, that you know sometimes they're actually working with the Fatimids. There's sometimes there was a for the Fatimids. Yeah. Uh, the Fatimid was seen as a kind of a necessary evil uh, in the face of the fact that you have the crusader threat. Yeah. And so sometimes, in fact, they would they would do that. Uh, but then he came to realize that the Fatimids are a major problem because they're allying with the crusaders against the Muslims. And I'd say that because remember, initially, he, in fact, sent Salah Hadin with his uncle Shawar to go and reinstate the Fatimid Wazir Shawar. Uh, but then when they realize that he's uh, again being, uh, you know, hypocritical uh, in allying with the Crusaders, then of course it was just to have to defeat the Fatimid state of Egypt. All the, the last Khalif dies in 1171. And then that was the end of the story. But the <coughs> idea was that if you're trying to build your program on the one hand in a sham, you have uh, an enemy uh, around you that's trying to destroy that project, uh, then that has to be taken care of. You have to look carefully at that. And then number three was the idea of make it your your focus on recapturing uh, Bittul Maqdis. He does this inspiration thing. He builds this minbar, uh, and it was uh, a magnificent minbar. And he uh, and it was a minbar of uh, of interlocking parts, no nuts, no bolts, you know. 
a magnificent piece of work and he has his minbar stationed in Aleppo uh, and and told the people that you know we, we're just waiting for al-quds to be recaptured and when it does we're going to bring this minbar down to al-quds but he dies 1174 that we didn't see that happening but it, it still gave this sense of hope to the muslims that they could uh, one day recapture Betul Maqdis, and then of course, like you mentioned, uh, it gave rise to Salah Hadin by this time because he's born in 1137. He's being raised, you know, in that culture and in that spirit, uh, you know, in in Aleppo, and thereafter, uh, he also becomes the ruler of Damascus as well after Nuruddin's death, and 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 he's kind of taking making use of that of those systems of administration. He as a young person he's raised really seeing war and conflict and he's uh you know becoming battle hardened in that sense although in all honesty i mean even that says he wasn't always the most pious of people but he has this transformation in his life uh he has two assassination attempts from the assassins hashashians of the of the ismaili you know sect um and uh he's you know becomes more conscious of the fact that you know he could die and he has this transformation. In any case, uh, you know, then takes on that same mantle of jihad spirit, like his, like Nuruddin Zengi, um, you know, and and works on unifying the Muslim world again. Sham, he's now of course ruler of Egypt as well, um, and and these became really important at times. So therefore, as you can see, there is both the need for political responses because once that exists, then it kind of inspires within the the Muslim body that success and victory is likely. But remember this also that uh, Salah Hadin is making it a point to always fight against the Crusaders in the name of the Khalif, of the Abbasid Khalif. He's not, uh, because of course, remember, these are dynastic families, the Zengid family and the Ayyubid family. And sometimes they're even at conflict with one another, right? So, but he, he has to... You have to make sure that you know the ummah has to know that the, the fight is much bigger than these dynastic families. Uh, that is in the name of of the of the of the you know of the power base you know of the Muslim ummah, which is going to be in this case the Abbasid Khalif. And if it's being fought in the Khalif's name, then it's a victory for Islam, not just a victory for the Ayyubid or the Zengid family. Uh, it the, the Khalif wasn't always interested, uh, you know. But but then you know later on he he began to you know support the effort and send soldiers and, and support them financially as well. So these things happen, you know. And one of the beautiful things I, I kind of, as again, another parallel to take away from this is how <clears throat> sometimes we look at idols or people who achieve great things like Salahuddin Ayyubi and just assume they came out of a vacuum and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala granted them victory. Whereas the planning for Salahuddin has started centuries before. Yes, yes. There, there were visionaries uh, like like Sulami uh, and scholars, poets, Nuruddin Zengi, you know, the direct kind of mentor, the, the person who nurtures this environment in which Salahuddin grows up in, such that we can say confidently that parents, educators in today's day and age have so much more of a role in instilling that love for Al-Quds in their children uh, and not knowing that upon whose hands Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala you know, will grant uh, will grant victory to them. Yeah, and I'll tell you something else. The other thing of the, is, is never to belittle your efforts. Never belittle your efforts, because remember, if the first responses were coming from poets, not necessarily scholars, but but there was kind of there was a voice, and poetry was the it was the medium. It was the it was the it was the way of communicating the strongest messages in poetry, because that was what was understood and accepted at that time. And beloved, you know, for the, the Arab people as well, of course, is to hear, you know, ornate verses. And mm -hmm. so 
uh, they could use that because that's going to be a way of that's their media that can disseminate their messages. Uh, today we have to remember, for example, in uh, in Gaza, the Zionist state they they bombed uh, Gaza's um, you know head of the media center, the AP center, mm-hmm. uh, so you uh, to you know to to prevent the world from seeing their crimes against humanity. You know. Uh, they're very concerned, in fact, about that. But we have to remember that we have a voice now. We have social media. So people using their social media, their Twitter accounts, their Instagram, their Facebook, you know, to to show the world, of course, that this is what's happening to the innocent people of Palestine is so because that's exactly what uh, Al-Abi Wardi was doing. That's exactly what Ibn Khayyat was doing. That's exactly what the poet was doing. They were showing, look at what's just happening. How can your eyes sleep and so on and so forth. Interestingly, uh, something we have today which they didn't have was uh, censorship. These platforms are not no. uh, value-free or value-neutral, no, and uh, quite no, a lot of posts are being censored and taken down. Yeah, of course. So, so therefore, it's, it's kind of it's, it makes our job much harder. But I mean, I mean, use your skills. Look at that time, for example, as Sulemi was a was a scholar. He could write a book. He wrote a book. Uh, he also has poetry in in his book as well. But he wrote the book. Now, the book was not taken that seriously in fact at that time but i'll tell you something so by the time you get to 1180s battle of hittin 1187 before battle of hittin uh the text that was selected for reading so you had these summer art you had these public readings that took place public auditions hmm. yeah that's it and so one of the texts that was selected in fact for the reading was a sulami's text who died like 80 years before he dies in 1105 i think so after writing he never the sees the result of his work he never, never sees, sees it. exactly that's it so mm. therefore never lose hope in that so because it was his text that was and they could have chosen like ibn mubarak's kitab al-jihad but they chose the more famous one but they chose in fact a sulami's one so therefore, uh, you know, never undermine your efforts. If you're sincere with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you know, do something. And remember, you made this point before, and I, f- I forgot the exact point you're making, but you you, are, you mentioned the point about why is Al-Quds seemingly more important than, let's say, the Uyghur Muslims, for example, and mm, elsewhere. Sorry, yes. yes. I, I want to say that we shouldn't see it like that. We shouldn't mm. see it like that. Because remember, for us, moral compassion equals moral consistency. Moral compassion equals moral consistency you know so it doesn't mean therefore that we only have we only see suffering in one part of the world but we can't see it elsewhere it doesn't mean that in fact so i gave a speech uh, a demonstration in slough just a few days ago and i began by saying that, that there are watershed moments in human history i think and i said that in 1955 the tragic killing of emmett till was a watershed moment in showing the American people and the world the, the, the truth, the bare reality of what racism was and this savage murder in Mississippi. Now, it doesn't mean, of course, racism didn't exist before. It did, and it still exists until today. But the moment, the killing, the savagery of the murder was a watershed moment. Recently, the killings of Eric Garner, George Floyd, and I Can't Breathe resonate, resonated all around the world. It was a watershed moment of police brutality. doesn't mean it wouldn't exist before. It did. But just a watch. And so today, therefore, what we're seeing in in the injustice and the of what's happening in in Gaza and in Palestine is also a watershed moment. The way, of course, our attention does turn towards there because of of the brutality of that occupation. But that's something, therefore, that should remind us still that there are still other people in the world who are also suffering, right? So the Uyghur Muslims are suffering. The people of Myanmar are suffering. The people of Kashmir are also suffering. Um, but but the, our focus on one does not make us should not make us oblivious to the suffering of another people, right? So one of the things that I spoke about was you know you have these um, 
you have these mental buffers. What's a mental buffer? A mental buffer is like, for example, if I said to an Englishman, tell me about 1966, what happened? Likely he will say, oh, that's when we won the World Cup, isn't it? 1966, yeah? But in 1966, you know, up to 1 million people were killed in Indonesia. You know, in 19, you had General Suharto, you had the, you had the anti-communist, you know, genocide funded by America, you know, in 1966. So therefore, if I'm, it's like they're saying that if you're, if you're always looking at what the right hand's doing and you don't pay attention to what the left hand's doing, you're going to be, you're going to be, you know, that's your mental buffer, right? Therefore, both hands are doing something, but we're focusing only on one hand. What about the other hand that's doing something? If I said to you, for example, what happened in 1969, people might say that's the year where America landed on the moon. 1969, I think it was, wasn't it? Yeah. But remember that the Mi Lai massacre took place in 1968, but by the time that reached uh, American media, it was 1969. People are in a mood of celebration. And they don't want to hear about the ghastly, grisly details of the Mi Lai massacre and innocent killings, massacre against innocent Vietnamese people. You see, it's an appetite for suffering, right? So we have this sense of becoming desensitized to suffering sometimes, you know, uh, because we're, we're over-focused in, in one area or the other area. I will say, of course, that Palestine is very essential in many ways because you mentioned the fact, and we've been talking about the fact that it's a, it's a sacred designation uh, with sacred sites, Al-Aqsa, and uh, and we're talking about a people who have suffered decades, decades of, of brutality, you know, savagery. This is, I mean, occupation. Just think, you know, in, in, in Palestine, for example, uh, you know, 40% of all the world's refugees are Palestinian refugees. That's six million refugees since 1948, you know? And think about the fact that what is settler colonialism? What is apartheid? You know, what does it mean? You could have your home dispossessed at any moment in time, you know? And because you who are a native inhabitant of the land and so have your forefathers always been native of the land, uh, another people who came from another place all of a sudden have more privilege and more entitlement to your your land and your property uh, because of who they who they who they are you know uh, and then think for example uh, the way that um, you know you have more than 600 military checkpoints you know all over occupied palestine you know think about this the difficulties that they have to live with the uprooting of trees of olive trees i have a chapter i have a new book coming out inshallah on july the 14th called uh, navigating war, dissent, and empathy uh, in Arab-U.S. relations, seeing our others in darkened spaces published by Springer. Inshallah, it's coming. I have a very lengthy chapter on Palestine called Landscaping Otherness and Challenging Frames of Nothingness in Contemporary Palestine, you know. Uh, and I go through a lot of these kind of things, um, the, the tragedies involved in that. Think about the fact that the Gaza is the longest siege in human history. The longest siege in human history is Gaza. You know, the most populated place, one of the most popular places on earth, open largest open air prison, and the bombardment. The bombardment. I mean, think about that. Just the killing of children, families. You know, and then of course, like you mentioned, the fact that sometimes the odds are stacked against us, even in the media machine, because the killing of of uh, uh, of Israeli children are killing of uh, are, are are called killings 
you know, and and the case of of uh, Palestinians is is deaths, you know, and so therefore we have this differentiation, differentiated human suffering or politics of human suffering that we have to challenge and 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 use our skills and efforts and talents against it. Now remember, of course, that not everybody in Balad al-Sham was a scholar or even a poet. Sometimes you had people who were just very good in inscribing things and they used their skill in inscription to do amazing inscriptions on walls and so on and so forth. You know, you had different people, different talents and skills, but I think that we have to be able to use, you know, our our talents, our skills and have have spaces in which those those skills can be utilized, you know, to fight back against oppression, to fight back against injustice, to have a voice for those who simply don't have a voice, the suffering and the dispossessed and and and, and poor and suffering people in our world. And I think that this is our our big obligation, you know, when Allah in the Quran says that uh, Imam Al-Qurtubi says that um, You know that establishing justice is one of the greatest obligations upon this ummah you know? And so in the face of injustice and tyranny and oppression We have to have a voice of reason you know, In showing that we want to establish And remember this is we have remarkable history uh, pertaining to that land, Betul Maqdis, that's founded upon principles of justice. You know, when when Sunnah Umar al-Khattab entered into uh, into Jerusalem, uh, Allah be pleased with him, the patriarch Heraclius was, in a very famous account, was showing him around the uh, the church of Holy Sepulchre and the time for Salah came and and he said, you can pray here, but Omar said, if I pray here, then people will take it as a masjid after me. Then he came out and he threw his stone and where the stone landed, that's where Omar prayed that now is Masjid Omar. And it has the ahad, it has the the, the, the pledge of Omar, you know, in that masjid. Uh, you can read it, you know, what was it that we give rights to the Christians that their crucifixes will not be destroyed, their churches will not be harmed and touched. They will have rights to practice their religion. I mean, this was giving rights to people as human beings, as human beings, like you mentioned the hadith about the Prophet stood up for the Jews and says, doesn't he have ruh, doesn't he have a soul, this person is a human being still, and we have given nobility to the sons of Adam, you know, we have to understand that Allah in the Quran says, Ya Yuhannas, O people, inna khalaqnakum min dhakrim wa untha wa ja'alnakum shu'uban wa qaba'i lita'arafu, in akramakum, in al-atqaqum, that the the oh people we create from a male and a female, a major nation, a tribe, so you would recognize and know one another, and the most honorable of you with Allah are those who have the most taqwa of you. You know, so we have so therefore in Islam we don't have this problem of uh, you know of uh, of othering and these binary distinctions between people on account of ethnicity, on account of color, and so on and so forth, because these are the are superficial, mean nothing in the eyes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so that's something that we have to have to have to consider inshallah. Jazakumullah khairan. And one of the beautiful things of Umar, now that you touched on Umar, was his statement, When did you make people slaves? When who gave you the right to make people slaves when their mothers give birth to them? Yeah, and this is his this is his advice to Amr ibn Aas because it was his son that that slapped the, the, the Christian, you know. Yes. Because they had a race. They had a race, and the Christian boy kept beating the the son of Amr ibn Aas. And then I think he slapped him. And then the, the father, the Christian, Coptic Christian, wrote to Umar, appealing to him that this is this what your faith is? And Umar wrote to Amr al-As and says, what's happening with your son? You know, when did we imprison a people who were born free? 
That's the point, you know. And remember that the the message of Musa salam to Fir'aun was what he says that me and Harun, a messenger from Rabbil Alameen, an arsil ma'ana bani Israel liberation. So send with us bani Israel. You know that's a that's something that we have to always bear in mind. That's a prophetic a prophetic mission, you know. And so, as Muslims, therefore, we have concern and care for all suffering people. Does not mean that if our, if our focus today is on Palestine, we forget the plight of the Muslims of Kashmir, of of China, and elsewhere. We have to campaign against all forms of injustice everywhere. And it does not mean also that Al Aqsa uh, Al Sharif. This is, of course, the the third most holy sanctity for the Muslims, and it's the second great masjid. Um, but remember that the, the life of the Muslims uh, is dearer to Allah, even than the Kaaba and all that it contains, you know. So we have to also bear that in mind as well. Jazakumullah khair, Dr. Uthman, for your time uh, and for such a, a beautiful exposition of history, of understanding uh, ethics from the Islamic tradition and from practical tips as well for what we can take away. Uh, we'll, we've gone slightly over the, uh, our usual time, but We'll give the next six, seven minutes if you still have time, Dr. Uthman, for questions from those who are listening live. If anybody has questions, feel free to post them on YouTube live and we will present them to Dr. Uthman, inshallah. Can, can I just say one, one final thing? Yeah, I think that of course, although we've spoken a lot about the 12th century and the the early Muslim response to the Crusades and the Din Zengi, uh, there were, of course, problems uh, thereafter. So when Saladin captures al Quds in 87, you know, there was some tragic uh, things that happened afterwards because uh, the Crusaders, they again had control of, of Al-Quds. And this is not so much so because of the rise of power of the Franks, although that was still there, but the fact that the division in the Muslims amongst the Ayyubid household made that possible for them. So, for example, you know, you had uh, one of the great scholars, Sib ibn Josie, who in fact was the... Uh, I think I think it was a grandson of Ibn al Jozi, um, uh, and he writes his text uh, Mirat al Zaman, and he was kind of outraged at the fact that Al Quds was handed back to Jerusalem by Al Kamil. Al Kamil was the uh, son of uh, one of Salahuddin's brothers, Sifaruddin, uh, and so therefore, from like the twelve twenty nine to uh, twelve thirty eight. Al-Quds was back in the hands of, of the Crusaders. And then you had some good Ayyubids, like, for example, uh, Nasr al-Dawud, for example. Um, you know, And he was one who kind of petitioned Sibl ibn Josi to raise his voice. What's happening? Sibl ibn Josi describes it as a kind of that, you know, uh, that you know, chaos emerged upon the house of Islam all over again. They described it as a qiyamah, as the end of time has happened. You know, it was a very kind of unbelievable event that took place. Uh, and then kind of it goes back to Ayyubid rule under Nasr Daud, for example, the ruler of Karak. Uh, but because of this sense of division against and the rivalries amongst these uh, Ayyubid family members, uh, it was handed back again to the Franks then in 1243 uh, until the Mamluks then, you know, finally in 1250 when they, they showed this kind of new, you could even argue that the Mamluks showed a much stronger jihad spirit uh, of resistance even then more than the Ayyubids as well um, Baybars and by that time you know, takes the coastline and and even he retakes he even retakes Ascalon had never been captured since 1097 but he takes back you know Ascalon as well uh, and so and then of course you know after that then you had the fact that 
the end of the Crusades finally with the fact that Acre was taken in 1291 by the Sultan al-Ashraf. Uh, and, and that really was one of the, the biggest moments in terms of like the literature and how that's being described. It was a humongous moment because the the scholars were called, the Quran reciters were called. They had a reading of uh, al-Bukhari. Uh, you know, you had uh, giving of charity. It was a big, big, big moment at that time. So therefore, even though that enthusiasm and energy uh, for protecting Al-Quds was really kind of uh, lost, I would say, uh, by the Ayyubid family after Salah Hadin's death. Um, it was picked up again then by the others, by the Mamluks uh, and, and Baybars and so on and so forth. Um, the, the point is, I think the lesson for us is going to be that uh, we don't see Al-Quds merely as a political center, right? Uh, because that could in fact diminish its worth, right? But Al-Quds is a land that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has blessed. Right? Al-Aqsa is a masjid that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has blessed. So we would always have that sense of connection to Al-Quds. And but politically, what happened with some of these later rulers is that because they're safeguarding the rights of Syria and Egypt, uh, they politically become far more important than even Al-Quds does. So for example, the 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 port of uh, Damietta Damiat, for example, was essential, and in the Fifth Crusade, and so on and so forth. Uh, so it would make sense, I guess, in, in that sense. But but that does not mean that you would ever undermine the the uh, the significant importance of Beit al-Maqdis. And so, therefore, just so that we have a more of a, a rounded picture, that even though you had uh, the great and what it does, in fact, it does again show uh, in how important Salah Hadin's revival was. Uh, in focusing his efforts on both unification of the Ummah and the defeat of the Crusaders in Jerusalem, and not one and not the other one, but but both of them, you know, all together. I mean, I mean, uh, Once more, for rounding off that that exposition on history, We have one question from uh, Saad Armuthi about Dua, and uh, he says, "What about the Hadith which mentions?" And the complete hadith uh, is in Tirmidhi where the Prophet says that by the one in whom my, my soul rests you will indeed command good and forbid evil and if you don't command the good and forbid the evil Allah may send a uh, a punishment from himself and then you make dua to him you call out to him yeah. and he will not respond to you from tirmidhi allah 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 protect all of us i mean this is, this is so true because this therefore hadith is showing us the importance of coalescing our concerns right it isn't just about being apathetic and being passive and just making dua and hoping for things to change but remember that like for example nuruddin's example of giving these stipends to the elderly was that they're part of the effort. They're part of the effort. Their presence is part of the effort as well. Um, it's kind of a holistic concern, but in, in, in this hadith is very crucial because if we're not commanding good and forbidding evil and doing our role as Muslims and fulfilling the rights of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then of course, uh, you know, we have to remember that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you know, in Tansurullah Yansurukum. Allah says, you know, if you give Nusra, if you give support to Allah's Allah and Allah's Deen, Allah will support you and Allah will make your foothold firm. So Allah will be with you. 
be mindful of Allah. Allah will protect you, and you will find Allah before you. And so, therefore, it's all about this is shartiya. This is a this is a condition that if mm. you do well with Allah Subhanahu wa Taala, Allah will do well with you. But if you distance yourself from Allah and you don't command good, you don't forbid evil, then don't expect Allah would help you. And we seek refuge with Allah, you know, from that Subhanahu wa Taala. I don't believe there's any other questions. So we'll wrap up here. May Allah uh, aid our brothers and sisters in Palestine and may Allah make it easy for all Muslims suffering, whether it's in Burma, whether it's in uh, the Uyghurs in China, whether it's in Kashmir. May Allah protect all of them and ease their suffering and make us of those who uh, stand up uh, for the sake of Allah and who do their part in, in the revival of Islam. Jazakallah khairan once more, Dr. Uthman, for your time. May Allah make this heavy upon your scales. Allah bless you. Thank you so much. Jazakallah khairan. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh and don't forget to uh, follow us on Facebook and Instagram and uh, keep updated with our podcast on YouTube as well as on the famous podcast platforms like iTunes and Apple Podcast for upcoming uh, conversations relevant to the 21st century this is Hisham Jafar and once more Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh